0: Welcome to It's a Good Life, a podcast dedicated to helping you live your best one. Here's your host, Brian Buffini.
1: Welcome to It's a Good Life. I'm your host, Brian Buffini. I'm going to do something for you today we really haven't done too often, which is we're going to replay a previous episode. Now, the reason for this this episode was recorded in April of 2020, and it was in preparation for the upcoming Olympics, and uh, America's most decorated winter Olympian is Apollo Ono, a brilliant guy with a great message, and he was also booked to speak at our Mastermind that year. Well, guess what? We're going to fast forward, and right now uh, we're in the season of the Winter Olympics. Now, I know it's not the most watched Winter Olympics in history, but there's some great stuff and some cool stuff to be had, and I always find, no matter what, what's going on geopolitically or whatever else, Empty stands, it doesn't matter. There is so much to be learned in the field of achievement from people who are striving to do their best. I actually, last night I was with the kids and I watched uh, the closing scene in Secretariat, the movie, and I watched the closing scene in Seabiscuit. And I I was almost moved to tears and just watching these horses with this whole story and whatever else, just totally going for it. Just going for it. And that's what's to be learned from these Olympians. They, they've pursued a life of excellence. They're trying to achieve the most difficult things possible. They've all had, by the way, hard luck stories. Every one of them has to overcome tremendous setbacks. We just had a, one of the women downhillers break her leg horribly. And, and that's what I, I kind of envision with the good life. We're trying to pursue the best and oftentimes we have to overcome some of the worst. Now we did this interview with Apollo right as we're getting into covid and you'll hear all the covid stuff throughout and i think it's actually fantastic i was just listening to this episode again and it really inspired me to say hey winter olympics are upon us there was a fabulous message here pushing through covid and now it'd be great to listen to this again and by the way apollo is still our guest speaker for mastermind we've had to cancel it the last couple of years it's on august 8th and 9th in san diego this year And we're going to have the great Apollo Ono present. So this is uh, an episode we recorded a while ago, but I would say this to you. One of my favorite episodes of all time, very timely with the Olympics. And uh, I'm going to share with you a follow-on episode where I'm going to take my insights from this interview and how I've applied it to my life. So take good notes, listen to it over and over, and enjoy. Today's program is called Unleash Your Inner Olympian, and it be harder to find somebody better than our guest today. He is the most decorated U.S. winter Olympian of all time, and it's Apollo Ono. Now, many of you know my wife, Beverly, was uh, on the Olympic volleyball team from 85 through 89, went to Seoul, Korea. And my perspective on it, as a soccer player looking in. There were athletes, there's college athletes, there's professional athletes, and then there's Olympians. And they're just different cats. And then you have the Super Olympians, and that's what we have here today. And so Apollo's been to three Olympic Games. He's medaled eight times. If you've ever watched short track racing, it's a combination of phenomenal athleticism, chess, a little bit of dodgeball with a bit of some kind of train wreck in the middle of that thing. And it's just a remarkable deal. He's. After his Olympic career, he's done some remarkable things. Of course, many of you would know him from Dancing with the Stars. It's funny how that works. The man's a world-class Olympian, but goes on dancing and the stars wins it. And he's finished the Kona Ironman in less than 10 hours. And many of you know we have a house over there. We volunteer every year at the Kona Marathon and the Ironman. And to do it in 10 hours or less is astounding. He's written a best-selling book, Zero Regrets. Uh, Certainly not short on accomplishments, Apollo is also going to be one of our featured guests at this year's Mastermind Summit. He is a phenomenal speaker. You know, coming from me, I've seen him all, done it all over the past 25 years. He is a war-class motivational speaker. Uh, And so, Apollo, thank you for taking some time to be with us today. It's a great honor to have you.
0: My pleasure, Brian. It's an honor to be with you guys.
1: So I have a couple of questions here. You know, we're we're all in the midst of a strange time, and uh, we're going to talk about unleashing your inner Olympian. You know, the Olympic Games have been canceled. And so many people have been working and peaking, getting their bodies into a peak state, their mind into a peak state, and now the pause button's been hit. And now they're going to have to recalibrate to get ready to go. I think that's a great lesson for all of us right now. All of us are going to have to hit the pause button and recalibrate to go again. What, what advice would you have for folks? I, mean, I know you're involved heavily still with advising folks you know, regarding these Olympians being ready to go and now having to stop. And now the, the goalposts have been moved again. What's your advice to them? And what can us ordinary folks who are not Olympians learn from that?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. As you know, the Olympic Games for 2020 have been postponed until 2021. Right. This pandemic has really shaken the world up in terms of what we had plans for, like you. And like many of the Olympians, our 2020, we had, you know, we're all January 1st. And even before, we're planning for a spectacular, powerful year. Mm. And everything looks good. Economic data looks good. You know, if you guys are heavily involved in real estate, everything is just just looking fantastic. And then like this, literally overnight, everything shifted. And on the athlete's point of view and perspective, you know, they prepare four to eight years of their life for this one particular moment to Mm. try and be perfect. And like your wife, they have a teamwork component. So everyone is training. Now they're not allowed to train in a team atmosphere. Now they're at home and they may or may not have the equipment necessary to maintain the physiology that is required to peak at those Olympic Games. And then psychologically, where in my belief is really the the, the game within the game and the most important game, those types of conversations are very interesting. And so these athletes were essentially training for something that they were not sure was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like you, and like many of the team around you, preparing for an event that you had planned for, for many, many months, if not years, everything looks perfect, you're excited to do it, and then all of a sudden, you're unsure. So you're kind of walking across this tightrope, luckily for those Olympians, there was a decision to be made. The games has been postponed. So they now can at least take a breather, disengage for a period of time Mm. and allow themselves to just be at this present moment, which I think was very important. It extends the timeline out for another year. So for those athletes that are older and don't have the same type of, you know, I've heard some athletes actually physically say to me, Apollo, I don't know if my legs have another year. Right. And that's a real feeling. So psychologically, there's a, there's a, there's a time period that has to happen where it's not like grieving, but it's almost like, hey, I need to just really back off for a second and just allow this to settle, allow myself to come to terms with what's happening. And then once, you know, I call it getting up on the balcony. So, you know, when you're in the midst, when you're in the fight, and this is not just for Olympic athletes, this is for everyone. When you're in and you're kind of grinding on a daily basis, it's very difficult to have the long view. And the long view can only be had as if you metaphorically climb up onto the balcony and you disengage from the field of battle for a second and you look out over the landscape and then from there you can say wow i was spending all of my energy over in this pocket when it actually wasn't benefiting me Mm. now that i'm able to disengage and make the proper decisions i can survey this landscape i can identify the key areas that i need to pursue and i have a long view of where the light at the end of this tunnel really is so when you're on that balcony and you're disengaged for a second. It allows you to make these cool, calculated decisions about what to do next. Try to remove that emotion out of the equation, because sometimes that'll, that'll, that'll force you to make some decisions that you won't be happy with later. Right. And it allow you to really say, how can I best serve what I need to do right now for the next uh, 20 to 30 days and for the next six months? And then you can get back and become and recalibrate towards that attack. So for those people who, and I, I am no different, Right? Even though I've had my Olympic experiences, uh, I also had these feelings of uncertainty and, and chaos and what's going to happen. Is it safe? I love speaking, connecting with people live. You know this better than anyone. When we connect with human beings live, it's so powerful. Mm. They can feel and see your energy. They can feel and see the inflections on the emotions that's happening. Uh, those things are very difficult to do via, via uh, you know, these digital spheres. So there's been a drastic shift, and so even for me, I'd have to shift. I mean, I'm I'm trying to turn this area here. And you guys, I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is going to be my eventually my home digital studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the event that if we don't have these live events, we can still try to deliver and connect with other human beings. So there's a couple of things. That was a long answer, Brian, but really just want to break it down. I think you know if you're feeling these things, and I said the same thing to Olympic athletes. If you're going through these moments of kind of uncertainty and helplessness you have to disengage for a second because that downward spiral can potentially be very negative Mm -hmm. and your mind is like a river of thought. And so you've got these thousands of thoughts that are running through your mind at any given day. Your natural hardwiring human uh, reaction is typically uh, fear, uncertainty, I'm going to run, right? That's just like we were getting chased by lions and tigers. You've heard that metaphor many times. So we live in a world that is very modern, but our brains have not adapted the way that we feel we can react in the way that would best suit what we need. And so don't allow that one or two negative thought to detract away from the way that you communicate and interact with your family, your loved ones, with your work, and with the goals that you set forth on January 1st. And so if you've been derailed, that's okay. Totally cool, That, that happens. But you have within your control to get back on the wagon, to reassess the situation, And to go out on the attack—that's going to best suit what you're seeking. And unless you do that and take control, you're just going to be a passenger in this speeding train versus being the conductor.
1: You bet. Well, about four weeks ago, we launched a little program called Five Circle Fit. So, spiritual, family, business, financial, personal—get the whole package together. Mm. Putting out little videos, the whole thing. We've had 180,000 people join us, uh, getting involved, and just providing them little resources every day. And we're we're using the analogy of the rolling start from NASCAR, right when they They have the car wreck, everything comes to a screeching halt, they clean up the road, they get everything organized, then they put the pace car out in front and bit by bit, warm up the tires, warm up the engine, get the Uh engine revving, go around the track a couple of times, and then when the pace car pulls away, you're going full speed. So that's what we're doing with a a huge community of people. And, And I would say to you, I'm 35 years in business and this is my fourth major crisis I've experienced in business. And what I found is it's never one thing or the other. It's never, oh, my gosh, there'll never be large events again. And or, oh, my gosh, there's only going to be broadcasting from home again. What you'll find is it'll end up being a hybrid of both. And yeah, you're right to do your studio. And there's opportunities to leverage yourself that way. And yes, there will be times again in front of the large crowd where you give the juice and you get the juice. And there's nothing like the juice. And from a sports standpoint, getting (laughs) out on stage is a lot like the juice that you get you know, performing in the Olympic arena. Uh, I'm going to do this because I wanted to dive into COVID-19. I wanted to dive into where we are today, but I want to do this because I want to walk through this journey. I love what makes people tick, mindset, motivation, methodology, and why people are successful. And I'm a student of success. You know, that's what I've been my whole life. And so let's just kind of switch gears for a second. I want you to go back to the very start and where did it all begin for you? And, and, uh, how did you end up becoming who you are? So a little bit of where you grew up and how you ended up getting into speed skating in the first place.
0: Sure. I grew up in the Seattle region. My father came to the United States as a Japanese immigrant when he was 17 years old. Like many who come to this country, they had dreams and aspirations of just the Americana culture and the life here. And my father didn't speak a word of English, didn't have any money, uh, tried every single job that he could just to survive in this environment. And he always jokes and tells me that, you know, when I was born, he had no idea what the hell to do with me. He just did not know what to do. And so it changed his life drastically. The one thing that he saw, I think, within me as his son was I just had this tremendous amount of energy. And it was very difficult for me to contain. So my father sought sport to be that catalyst, Mm -hmm. to be that channel to direct where that energy was going. And I had tried the traditional American stick and ball sports. We had seen the Winter Olympic Games in 1992, and then again in 1994, and that's when I first saw short track speed skating. Mm. And when I saw this sport, it looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. These athletes wearing these outfits that look like superhero uh, capes, they're racing around this uh, ice hockey rink Mm. going 35 to 40 miles an hour on a one inch piece of metal. It looked impossible, it didn't look real. And then my father, because I grew up in Seattle, he drove me to Vancouver, B.C. to see a competition live. Mm. That was when I really fell in love with the sport. Because when you see short track speed skating, the angles at which these athletes lean over right. are so extreme. And to think that they're balancing on a literally 1.1 millimeter piece of metal, it just, it just seemed completely insane. And I turned, I originally wanted to be a boxer and a running back. He said no to both. And you know, by 5'8, 145,
1: that was a great career decision, Pops. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think, think that was probably the, the best decision. Uh, basketball <laughs> is pretty much out. Not impossible, but most likely not in my favor. So, you know, I had to develop some strength design around which sport I was gonna choose. And I fell in love with this sport of short track speed skating. Here's a story that I, you know, I've told kind of in the past. My path and my journey to becoming an athlete. In the olympic realm was was definitely not easy so i was accepted at the age of 14 to be a part of something called the junior olympic training program in lake placid new york now lake placid new york is on the (laughs) company opposite side of the country and my father had told me this is a tremendous opportunity for you apollo they had seen you skate in some local competitions but you need real training and they see a lot of raw talent but you need to hone and craft that with some tools and tactics so that you can really be your absolute best now, at 14, I don't even know what making an Olympic team actually even means. I don't know what, it, what has to happen. I don't know anything about dedication, discipline, sacrifice. Those things are, it's summertime in Seattle, and I just want to go out and barbecue with friends. Like, that, that's what I, that was what I was interested in. And so my father drives me to the airport, Brian, drops me off, and he says, look, if you don't like it after one month, you can come home, but you just got to give this one chance. Mm. So I wave goodbye to my father. Instead, I go directly to the payphone. Back then, we had payphones. Uh, and i pick up the payphone i call my friend and tell him hey i'm supposed to go to new york today but i'm not going to go so for the next 7 to 8 days i'm spending and bouncing around from house to house while my dad believes that i'm in i'm in new york but i'm so pissed off i won't call him right until he gets the call from the coach and the coach is like mr ono we're just kind of curious if you still plan on sending your son out to us if you are great we just haven't heard from you my dad's very confused, very thick Japanese accent. It's like, oh, you lost my son. We have a big problem, <laughs> right? And so uh, that was my first entrance into, you know, what was happening. So my father finally figures out which house that I'm at, picks me up. Two weeks goes by of us arguing back and forth. He's telling me, I know what's best for you. In my own small brain, I'm thinking, I know what's best for me. I'm the man of this house, right? now, I, I'm a single, single child yeah. in a single parent household. Right. So you know, anything my dad was saying, I was saying the complete opposite. Right? And my dad, it was coming from a place of love. and. You are 14. You were 14. I'm 14. Yeah. I'm 14. <laughs> so he drives me to the airport again, parks the car, goes into the airport, gets on the plane with me, makes sure that he delivers the, the package to, to the coach. We drive to Lake Placid um, after getting off in Albany, New York, and he walks right up to the coach, says, good luck, and then turns around, <laughs> and, he goes, and he goes back to Seattle. <laughs> And this coach is like, oh, my gosh, this, this problem child. I've been hearing all these rumors yeah. that have been happening. To make this, the story shorter, I, I find my path. And through some great mentorship and coaching, uh, I started to really love the sport. And I love the dedication and the hard work. And I learned a lot. And my career really skyrocketed from that point. And it was never you know, always up, but it was always up and down. and Many, many losses and failures that I learned from. A lot of times we had to reinvent ourselves. But that was my entrance into the world of short track speed skating. And I won my first medal when I was, um, uh, when I was actually 15 and a half years old. I won my first World Cup medal. Wow. And that was my, my real taste of, wow, I think I can actually do something in this sport.
1: So now you get into that game and you start to play in the deeper waters, right? Yep. And so somewhere inside is the drive. Somewhere inside is the I'm going to compete. And somewhere inside is this, I'm going to be the best. Mm. You know, now there's talent, right? I I don't know if you've been watching The Last Dance at Michael Jordan. You know, it's been kind of fun to watch, but, you know, the guy, everybody talks about how, you know, incredibly driven he was. We know him and we coached his wife. We have a relationship there. Uh, You know, I've met a lot of guys in the NBA that are just as competitive as Michael Jordan, but he was physically more gifted and driven in a way to become great that made him different. There's a lot of competitive people but they won't put it in the preparation. You know, one of the things, uh, and I'll, I'm going to fast forward and then come back kind of like the last dance, but you know, I, one of the quotes of you that, that hit me the most was when you were preparing for your last Olympics. You've already been a champion. You're already the Wheaties box guy. You're already all over the American news. You've already got your gold medals and all kinds of medals. And you decide, I'm going to be in the best shape of anybody walking into that in your third Olympics. You went to three workouts a day You dropped 20 pounds. You got to two and a half percent body fat, which I think my left leg could represent. You know, and and you said no one is going to be in better shape than me, not even close. So talk about that, because you, when people meet you, you're a guy that people can relate to. You're a you're a neat guy. You've got a great countenance about you. But there's a stoking fire in there. And how did that? How did you discover that about yourself? And where does it come to the point where I'm going to be in the best shape of any single person in the world? In my sport, where where does that come from?
0: So I, I think that mentality was really trained over time. Mm. And originally, I, I had the raw talent, like many athletes around the world who have some success. I had the raw talent, but talent alone, unfortunately, is just not enough. Mm. In the last five percent, mm-hmm. it is merely uh, it is merely just the the starting line. To be honest, it gets you to the starting line, but the race is run after all the preparation and hard work. And I recognized that through the times that when I was very prepared and the times that I was not prepared. Right. And I saw the major differences between when my mindset was shifted on and I did the work necessary, typically the results and the outcome favored what I was seeking. It wasn't guaranteed by any shape or, or imagination, but the, the fulfillment and the satisfaction that I would get from myself came from that preparation. And so I never thought that I was the most genetically gifted and talented. I always felt like I was the underdog. Mm. Now the reality spoke a totally different language, right? However, I felt that. And even in the latter years of my life, I was so driven and so in fear sometimes of not being good enough. And not being good enough in terms of the result, but not preparing Mm. to the level that I wanted. And I never wanted to look myself in the mirror and say I would've, could've, done these things i much more wanted to have a conversation myself and said you know what you gave every ounce of your being soul and spirit to this and whether you won or lost sometimes is not in your cards right we don't know the total life chapter of uh, how this plays out yet but i recognized that very early and i think the first time that i tasted that that real kind of fire was after spending time in lake placid i, I just i hated to lose and i noticed of how mm. I mean, now we're getting deeper into the kind of neuroscience and psychological mm-hmm. component, but I didn't like the way it made me feel. You feel inferior. You feel not good enough. You feel less than. You feel, how can I be better? So we human beings, like we always crave progress, and we crave having some touches of success. And at the age of 15 and 16, I knew that I loved to win, but more importantly, I really hated losing, right. especially when I felt that I could do better. Right. That was really the catalyst. And so... As I went on throughout my career, uh, when I would lose, and and my persona today versus my persona when I'm training, it's they're two different personalities, right? And And I think all of us have, and we wear those masks in a sense. I think we have to, right? So there's a competitor, an inner drive, and a fire in all of us. I call it that high performance mindset. So when that's switched on, you are very sharp. You're very hungry, and it's time to get work done. And there's times when maybe perhaps that doesn't come into play. But for me the longer my career went on, the more and more that started to grow. And so my competitiveness and fire actually became more intense and more obsessive the latter part of the years of my career. And a part of that came from, I just felt like I had to work harder. I didn't. I felt like this younger generation was reinventing the way the sport was being played, the speed at which we were skating, the training necessary, The physiology, the technology, the nutrition, recovery, everything had been elevated every single three to four years. And so I had seen athletes who were in their in in the veteran ages, they said they could no longer compete because they were not willing to evolve. And I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to always be the guy with the target on my back. And I wanted to do so in a way that would just greatly benefit my results. So the fire was there. And when I lost, Brian, I took it very, very personally. I think that there's very healthy at certain times if it's managed appropriately. Right. But it also can be, it can be very psychologically damning, right? It can also be very consuming. And yeah. so I would say there was many times throughout my career, and this is something that I learned, that I didn't need to be so incredibly obsessive because I couldn't control every single micro you know, millimeter of performance.
1: Especially in your sport. Because your sport, if yeah. some lula has bad technique and decides to bump you from behind... <laughs> You're going into the wall. There's nothing you can do to stop that.
0: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so you develop that mentality of you really start rewarding yourself on the process and you start focusing less on the prize. And the prize, which is at the Olympic Games and making the podium, that is your metric. That is what you are shooting for. That is the target. But there are so many thousands of steps and processes that are much more important to get there. And I know that when I raced my first final, in the Olympic Games, this was 2002 in the 1,000 meters, there was about a 15 foot distance between what I was in first place to the finish line. And for a fraction of a split second, I thought to myself, I got it. The mm. gold is mine. Wow. And you know what happened was I got sideswiped and three of us fell down and I didn't win. I, I won the silver, but I didn't win gold. And whether that would have happened or not, right it was just like a learning lesson to say, hey, this thing is never, ever over until you cross that finish line. Right. And so I just, I just learned at an early age, both the competitiveness and the drive, the fact that I couldn't control the outcomes required me to really focus on the process. And because I thought that I wasn't good enough in that process, I wanted to be the guy that at least I could say no one worked harder. And right. that was within my control.
1: Well, and therefore a, a well-named book, Zero Regrets. And what, what a great mindset to have for all of us to be able to say, I put it all out on the table, and I'm good with that. And and like I said, I've interviewed, you name it, I've interviewed them in the sports world, the business world, finance world, and there's a balance, and there's a balance. And I I think sometimes you don't know how much is too much until you do too much. Right? I mean, the bottom line is, what makes a, a champion, what makes an Olympian, what makes a very successful person, is a level of commitment where you're all in. You know, Abraham Lincoln's quote, to do all that I can with all that I have, you know, it's like, boom, I'm going to put it all on the table. And the dynamic though, I think that's very encouraging to hear from you is this isn't something you were just born with. This is something that was developed over time. You honed it, you polished it. Now as an immigrant myself with six kids grown in America, I I would say, you know, for me, passing on a little bit of that immigrant mindset to my kids has always been a big deal to me. I have a daughter who's trying to make the Olympic teams in in equestrian and she even though we've grown up in a, a pretty good environment and so on and so forth, she's competing against billionaires who are sponsoring horses and whatever else. You know, right. you're the you're the son of a single parent Japanese immigrant. Did you know did, he didn't speak fluently? I think there's a good thing. I mean, even then, doing the the speed skating. You know, it's it's American speed skating. It wasn't exactly the number one sport in America. You know, you're competing against countries that found their national identity in it. So on one hand, there's that drive, and then the key is how to manage it so that it doesn't consume you. And it sounds right. like you've done a great job of wrestling back and forward with that <laughs> yeah. so that, you know, you, the fire burns as hot as it can without burning down your house.
0: That, I think that that's perfectly said. You know, I think that we can only control what we can control. The immigrant mentality and, uh, you know, there's something is like stay hungry, mm-hmm. right? Stay hungry, stay foolish. Always continue to learn and always stay hungry no matter what. We as human beings have the capacity to always grow and we can change our neurochemistry through that system. We're understanding how that works now. So the mindset to me was always the single greatest tool. And I saw that in my father and the way that he worked. I saw that in the way that he approached life in general. And he just he worked so incredibly hard. And the consistency on the daily things that we do compounded over time always yield the greatest returns. That's just been proven amongst anyone who's had levels of success. Mm-hmm. And so we all want things. We want certain levels of success. We have to get a little more granular, understand that are you willing to put in the time and work? And you may not be the most talented. I definitely wasn't. You, you may not be the most gifted. I definitely wasn't. And if you are, great. You've got, you've got turbochargers already, but you got to put these pieces in place mm-hmm. and you're going to have a, a limitless mindset. And
1: so you used, I hate this feeling of losing into yeah. a positive energy. I, I challenge people all the time. Thank God we've been teaching people financially for years. Put your reserves aside. Plan for a rainy day. You know, now, if somebody didn't do that and they don't have their finances right now and the whole economy just shut down, it's not the end of the world. But that feeling you feel of insecurity financially, where you don't know what if you have enough covered, if you don't know if you have, like, use that feeling to fuel you in the future. You know, I I love the John Wooden quote. He said, when opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. And preparation is now. I mean. Our company, we were able to send hundreds of our employees home and have a year's worth of funding for our company ahead of time, and the reason being is that we came through this massive recession in two thousand and eight uh, that went on through two thousand and eleven, and we learned from it. And so you mm. learn from losing. You learn, and it's, okay, mm. I hate that feeling of losing a race. Now here's what I'm going to do. Give, give me this, and so this is just a little bit, because I, obviously, you know, like I said, people who are at an Olympic level, I've been around them for. 35 years, wired up a little different, driven a little differently. Describe a day uh, when you're just in training and you're getting ready for the Olympics. Describe how regimented it is and describe what it looked like. I know it's a few years ago now, but you're still a young man. You're the, all the synapses are working well. Describe what a, what a day looked like as you were preparing for the Olympics.
0: A day in preparation for the Games, I think at our peak volume, so at the highest amount of training volume, we wait, I would wake anywhere between 6 and 6.15 in the morning. I'd be at the ice rink by 7 a.m., be at the ice rink warming up for about 45 minutes off ice, do our skating drills and exercises, jog probably about a mile, maybe two miles, get on the ice, have a two-and-a-half to three-hour training session. We'd get off the ice, do some stair jumps and plyometrics. That's around 11.30, almost noon, cool down, stretch. I would bring food with me so I could begin that recovery process right away. So, I wanted to cut down the driving time to go back home to make my food. I wanted it with me right away so I could start recovering, replenishing my system. Uh, and then I'd be back to the ice rink around 2 30, begin warming up for the second session of the day. Well, technically, I guess that's the third session because we've done two already. Third session, uh, usually as plyometrics, a bike workout, a running workout, a weight workout. And then we get on the ice again for another hour to two hours, which is usually high speed or technical training. And then at night, so then I would cool down, come back home, I would recover. And then around, I think around 6 p.m., I would do another workout with my strength coach who I hired to come live with me in my house to monitor every single thing we were doing. We would do a third workout that was designed to both cut weight and to stimulate uh, basically my anaerobic threshold system. So we would do this on the treadmill. Usually it was typically uh, a very high intensity run or sprints on the treadmill at a very high incline or just very high speed. And then I would you know, calm down. I would, I would sharpen my skates. I would write in my journal. I would go in the sauna, meditate, kind of start to really start to relax and visualize what I want to do. And then at night I'd have dinner and pretty much go to bed. And that's how it was for, you know, we do that about six days a week. Sundays are off. I did that for years. I mean, for years, it was like that lifestyle. And I remember times when I was training twice on Christmas, always twice on my birthday, just like doing things for the, for, for the sake of doing it so that cognitively I could register to say that I've done the work. Now, Brian, we were probably overtrained most of the time. right? We didn't know, you know, this was 15 years ago. We didn't know what was really required from a recovery perspective. We were using data and science and, and injecting that into our daily routines but we did not fully understand how overtrained we were. So looking back, we could have made some changes, but it was the mindset that was so powerful. When I showed up, I had gone through, and we all of us had gone through, we would go through these times, right, of pressure and of polishing, and it was very, very important for me to recognize that I had gone through the gauntlet, I had walked through the fire, and I had came through, and maybe I had scars, and maybe I was burned, and I am stronger because of that. Mm. And that is very empowering. And I take that with me today when I go into business. And I, my life is filled with incredible curveballs and variables and blessings and tragedies. That's, that's life. Right? And I'm, I'm grateful for all of it because I just believe that this is a gift. And I don't want to waste a day. I think that, and I believe that I am here for a purpose, and hopefully I can help people unlock their own inner potential in a way that they become more confident, more resilient, better relationships with their family, and they're, they're getting what they believe they both deserve and what they seek.
1: Well, you're helping a lot of folks today. I wanted just to dive in there. You know, I, I'll have people and I'll challenge people to do some activities. Now, I'm not asking people to do Olympic level activities. Yeah. But I think it's great when you see how much the human condition and body and mind can be stretched. All of a sudden we're asking them to do a few Rico's reps and a few, write a few personal notes and make a few calls and go visit some of their customers or call their customers. All of a sudden, you know, that's pretty freaking doable. You know, I mean, I can write four personal notes if this dude's doing five exercises a day, five (laughs) workouts a day, I can do this if he's doing this for years and he's working on Christmas day and he's working on his birthday and he's making sacrifices And there's personal sacrifices to be made. Uh, Horses don't care that there's a coronavirus. They have to be ridden or they get in bad shape, you know, and they get in trouble. I mean, my daughter, you know, she's 26 years of age, but she's out of here at five o'clock every morning and she's in the gym here at night, 11 o'clock at night. And that's amazing. That's the deal. And that's what it is. And that's the mindset it takes. I've interviewed a lot of people that when they got the brass ring, for example, Brett Favre, they handed him the trophy. And afterwards he went, oh my gosh, is this it? Is this all? (laughs) How was it for you when you got that medal around your neck? Was it enough? Was it good? Was it, was it a letdown? Was it euphoria? What was it when they put the medals around your neck?
0: My, my first medal that I won and that I received, I, I was complete euphoria. Look, I had been on the podium many times, mm-hmm. and the Olympic Games is a unique experience. right? It's, it's unlike any other competition I had raced before. I think the euphoria and the letdown doesn't happen until you retire. MM. And that transition is a very challenging part for any athlete, Olympic especially. You know, I call it the great divorce. Mm. You've been married to this one true love your whole life. And at the snap of a finger, it tells you, because either by choice you've retired or you just aged out. It says, there's nothing that you can do, but you're not for me. I have a younger suitor who's (laughs) genetically better, who works harder, better story, better sponsors. And you got to find out what to do. So that loss of identity is very visceral sure. and real. And learning how to pivot and, and change and reinvent was a really big part of that. But the Olympic experiences, I've been blessed enough to be able to stand on the podium eight times and represent this country. And I would not take any of it back for anything. It was so powerful. And I tell you, one thing that was, remains true is when I stand there, it's not, I don't feel like it's just me. That was the difference. Is I felt like I had 300 plus million people behind me and supporting me, and cheering, and watching. And that's, a, that's when sport started to feel bigger than sport to me. Like it represented something that was deeper into our psyche and our soul. And I think that's also why I just wanted to train so hard. Because yeah. I felt like I couldn't let that down.
1: Well, it produces a mindset. I, I have not watched a lot of Dancing with the Stars, but the year you were on, <laughs> I said to my wife, I go, this dude's going to win this, like the first night. And, and it wasn't just, oh, he can dance. I said, he's going to outwork everybody who comes in there. You just there's no way there's no way he just it's a straight translate. Jerry Rice was the same way. Jerry Rice yeah. got a chance. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and it's it's a functioning compulsion, right? It's a way to make it go. It's it's establishing those routines, and that's why I think for right now for people, these routines produce resiliency. That this the structure produces stability, and we're really pushing people to really be active right now in this in this. Before the green flag goes down and this rolling start goes back and the economy's wide open, it's time to get the engine revving. It's time to get the mind going. It's time to get the body going. My goal is to be better coming out of this than I was going into this. Right. And that's what I'm challenging people to do. And and I think that's the mindset. And that's the mindset. Obviously, you have. I could talk to you for a long time. I'm going to do this because one of these days, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to do it this year. But whenever they let us host our (laughs) mastermind summit. Apollo, you're going to be there, and uh, you're an inspirational guy, and I really appreciate you working on your craft uh, in regards to communicating and presenting. I've been at it for 35 years. How you feel about skating is how I feel about speaking, and here's the difference. Every athlete, you, everybody stops playing one day, but uh, they got to kind of roll you off stage with an oxygen mask, so it's, <laughs> you can go a long time. So there, yeah. this next world, and I know you're in other business ventures, but this next world, You can go a long time and you can really beat on your craft. The goal is, and my goal is always, I've spoken to tens of thousands of people at one time. And my goal is always, I want them to folks to leave and say this. He was just talking to me. He was just talking to me. And that all shows up in preparation. That all shows up in preparation. So we'll have a chance to talk more about this in the time to come. I have five rapid fire questions that I ask everybody. Yeah. It's just to give us a little flavor inside Apolloono. Sure. Ono. You don't know what they are, so I'm just going to come straight off the top okay. here. Okay. Number one, what's the best single piece of advice you've ever been given? Believe. Mm.
0: Believe in yourself. Believe in your path. Believe that you can rebound from anything. And believe that what you seek, you can have mm. if you truly believe. But it's got to start with it inside belief. Where did that come from? Who gave you that? My father.
1: Nice. What did your dad do, by the way? What did he work at?
0: So my dad went to school originally to be an accountant. Mm -hmm. And then as he was struggling to make bills and and to pay for school, he saw a sign that said, haircutting competition. Wow. Signed up for it. Never having picked up a pair of scissors. Won the competition. All of his friends told him, you have a unique talent. You should drop out of accounting school and you should actually... You should pursue this craft and that's exactly what my dad did so my dad still to this day has his small business in downtown seattle wow. called yuki's diffusion in belltown and but look my dad doesn't make a lot of money but he loves being the guy who's been there for a long time and has friends that go back 40 plus years so
1: that's awesome well i was an immigrant and i was an accountant by trade and i ended up in real estate so it's uh, all the same. You had always had a great head of hair, Apollo. So that's good. He he passed on more than just that. That's great. And obviously that believe what a great what a great legacy he yeah. gave you. What a great he believed in you and he put you on an airplane to New York. God bless yes. him. Uh, what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you don't?
0: I think the one talent that I wish I possessed, but I do not naturally have, I think is the is the natural fundamental talent around finance
1: Mm.
0: i have to work very very hard sometimes two times or three times harder to really absorb and that's okay and and i've come to terms with that but i think you know i have some friends who they can look at a problem they deconstruct it like a reverse engineering mind can and i know this because i i I went back to business school i went to wharton business school at the end of last fall Mm. and i was surrounded by 38 other c-suite executives and there was times we were talking about finance and we, had, we were given different tasks and challenges for this six weeks that we were all spending together. And I just see it, saw how fast they could calculate and process information. And I was like, that I know my strengths. Right. That does not happen to be one of them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing. Yeah. And it's, you know, th- but that's, that's one for sure. Well, I,
1: I would say, you know, as a coaching company, what we've discovered is that when you get someone who's naturally talented and they develop skills, they can become a superstar. But when you get someone who doesn't have the natural talent, but they have the work ethic, they can be awfully, awfully good. So the yeah. fact that you have to work at it twice, one of the great things, one of the great traps of finance is people who get it quick because they make yep. quick mistakes. And so the fact that you have to measure twice and three times when it comes yeah. to money is not a bad thing, my friend. So <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, it's Thank a good thing. Right. Here's the third one. What book has been most instrumental to you? What book
0: has been most instrumental? I think oh, there's been so many. I love books on leadership mm-hmm. and I love books that integrate kind of philosophical, whether it's uh, stoic related philosophy or Eastern philosophy. I like bigger picture books that allow me to take a step back. So I, I would say I love all the Simon Sinek books. I think sure. he's kind of hit the bullseye many times. I love a book called The High Potential Leader. Yeah, It's difficult for me to pinpoint
1: one. What about, what about this? How was it? reading zero regrets when it was put together how did that book impact you when you read that again is it's difficult when you get your thoughts and it's down on paper and then it's brought back to you
0: it's very difficult uh and you know i wrote that book in a very certain mindset and i still believe that mindset resonates true today uh but i was very happy look i'm very proud and happy that for that book i'm writing a new book called hard pivot
1: yes i had heard it was supposed to come out this year before the world decided yes. not to cooperate.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So that book
0: is, you know, it's about reinvention, resilience, adaptation, high performance. Seems to, to be kind of perfect
1: for now, buddy. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. I'd keep the machine rolling. <laughs> yeah, keep the machine rolling. Um Well, when you get that book, you let us know. We have a giant book-buying audience. Our folks are right. readers and readers who are doers. So when you have your first copy of that, you send that to me and we'll put it in our channel. We have millions and millions of people we're connected to and we'd love to promote that. Okay, I know you're not a big movie watcher or a TV watcher, mm-hmm. but you're scrolling through the channels, and there's one movie, and every time it's on, you stop. What's the one movie you either watch part of it or all of it, over and over and over again? It's the one that, that just stops you, and you always got to check it out.
0: <laughs> I'm old school. I like, I like Rocky movies. Come on. I like the guy who's an underdog. I like the guy who keeps getting back up. That's just, that's who I am.
1: Scott Hamilton and I are great friends. and. Yeah. At one stage, I think he recognized he, he fell 46,000 times in his career. And if you're in the ice skating business, you are going to fall over. Yes. And, it, and it hurts. <laughs> okay, it hurts. So getting up off the deck and going over and over and over again is definitely the price of the sport yes. you chose. Last but not least, what's one thing still on the bucket list you've yet to do?
0: Uh, I, I, look, there's many things in the bucket list. I think I'm living them right now. The most important mission on the bucket list is I want to inspire, motivate, and help millions of people across the world unlock their potential to live a better life. That, that's really, that's it. And I don't feel like I will ever accomplish that because that's gonna keep growing. We've got billions of people in this world. and I think all of us uh, seek a happier, more fulfilled life.
1: Well, great stuff. Well, you reached an awful lot of them today. We just been, uh, <laughs> we've been pumping out as many messages as we can. We've met millions of people in the last few weeks. Between our That's podcasts great. and and Facebook Lives and all that kind of good stuff, it's great to meet you, and it's an inspiring story. We are going to stand on some stages together, my friend. It is going to happen. Uh, we're going to still hope for Mastermind. We'll see how and when it all shakes out. But one of these days, I'm going to get Apollo Ono on a stage for us, speaking to our phenomenal audience that will eat this stuff up. But I really appreciate your time today. What a great career! What a great man! And uh, the bet your best days are yet to be in front of you. You know, you're still. You're still at the peak of your life, and uh, you have so many great things in front of you. And all of these lessons you've learned are so valuable and so helpful. You're not stuck in the past, and you know uh, Bruce uh, Springsteen used to have a song called "Glory Days," you know, and (laughs) where we all get stuck on our glory in the past. But there's lessons from there that are so helpful for the future. And I know you're you have a great hand on your shoulders for that stuff, and I'm very excited for you. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for blessing our audience. And we look forward to being on the stage together real soon.
0: Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, what a neat interview. What a fantastic young man. What a great, uh, great path he has had. And uh, it's just great for us to get exposed. You see the life of an Olympian. And when you look at your tasks, when I look at my tasks, when I look at the five circle fit, when I look at my schedule, you know, it's pretty doggone doable. When you hear these folks that are achieving at the very, very highest level in the world at their sport, and you see the level of commitment it takes, we don't have to do that, but we should be inspired to do a little bit of that. So that's what I'm challenging all of you folks today. If you're doing the Five Circle Fit programs, if you're in the Buffini training programs, you know, do the activities, do the activities, be a champion, hate to lose, hate the feeling of financial insecurity, hate the feeling of not being able to pay for your kid's college education. You know, it's okay. It's okay to use that as a short-term motivator. And uh, so great stuff there today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I certainly did. It was great to meet that champion. And so let me leave you with a little Irish blessing, especially for today's times. May the roads rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time.